The year is 1969. I, Richard Billhouse, next to do solemnly swear. A lot happens. Richard Nixon is sworn in as president. The Manson family commits the Manson family murders. Neil Armstrong walks on the freaking moon. And that's just the start of it. Across the nation, millions of young Americans are protesting en masse against U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. On November 3rd, President Nixon pleads with the silent majority that put him in office to rally around the war effort. Let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. On December 1st, the first draft lottery since World War II is put in place. If you're And meanwhile, somewhere in the Bay Area, a man sits in his office and contemplates the failure of his latest, boldest dream. The man's name is Clark Kerr, and the failed dream is an experimental public university called UC Santa Cruz. My name is Kyle, and you're listening to the UCSC Slugcast, brought to you by the Division of Student Affairs and Success. Okay, I've thrown a lot at you. So, let's back up for a second. Just to clarify, UC Santa Cruz did not end up being a failed dream. We're doing pretty dang well right now. But Clark Kerr had a good reason for freaking out. In July of 1969, Kerr experienced what he'd later call one of the worst afternoons of his life. A visit to, of all places, UC Santa Cruz. And the crazy part? Kerr was kind of right. 1969 marked the beginning of a rocky patch for UC Santa Cruz. Over the following decade, student application rates would plummet. The SAT scores of the ones who did apply tanked. UCSC's reputation is kind of in the garbage. Plus, serial killers. But I'll get to all that in a second. For now, you have to understand what happened leading up to Clark Kerr's Santa Cruz visit. And for that, we'll need to take a trip across the mountains to visit UC Berkeley. It probably will not surprise you to learn that throughout the 1960s, the UCs were known for radical political activity. Call it fame or call it infamy, the nation knew about the UCs, and UC Berkeley was the school making the headlines. Ever heard of a little thing called the free speech movement? The free speech movement. Yeah, me neither. But 1969, ugh, 1969 was crazy. Take May 15th, a day now known in Berkeley as Bloody Thursday. 
A month prior, a coalition of Berkeley residents and students had started working on a kind of hybrid public park political gathering space and homeless shelter called People's Park, situated on a vacant lot owned by UC Berkeley. The university had not given them permission, per se, but it was right smack in the middle of the downtown area, and no one seemed to be doing anything with it. So, the activists figured, what's the harm? Little did they realize, of course, that People's Park had caught the eye of one California governor, Ronald Reagan. There, a small minority of beatniks, radicals, and filthy speech advocates have brought shame on a great university. Reagan had made promises during his campaign, promises that he had to keep. One of them was to crack down on radical political activity on California college campuses, especially UC Berkeley, which he'd once called a haven for communist sympathizers, protesters, and sex deviants. And persons twisted and gyrated in provocative and sensual fashion. In People's Park, Reagan saw an opportunity. So, on May 15th at 4.30 a.m., he blatantly ignored a promise from Berkeley's chancellor that nothing would be done without warning, and sent a few hundred local police officers to give any current residents the boot, fence off the entire area, and begin dismantling the park. Quickly protesters gathered, loads of them, upwards of 4,000. By early afternoon, the protesters had begun to throw things, bricks and bottles. More police and riot gear showed up. The crowd swelled to 6,000, and then... chaos. Police started by pushing protesters back with nightsticks. When that didn't work, they fired buckshot into the crowds and deployed tear gas. Berkeley had become a war zone. Roll your eyes back. Late in the day, Reagan deployed 2,700 National Guardsmen to help the local police, who'd started covering their badges. They pushed the protesters back street by street until, by 5 p.m., the area was finally secure. But the carnage didn't stop there. For the next two weeks, National Guardsmen walked to the streets, breaking up small gatherings and deploying tear gas at will. A curfew was instated. 250 people were arrested in one night. At final count, Bloody Thursday left hundreds injured, thousands arrested, and one person, a man named James Rector, dead. The events were broadcast nationwide. As you might expect, everyone at UC Santa Cruz, everyone immediately knew about Bloody Thursday. And a lot of student activists here, well, they were pissed. Less than a week afterwards, a coalition of UCSC students delivered a series of demands to the UC Board of Regents. Not the head of UCSC, mind you, but the heads of the entire UC system. Those demands included amnesty for everyone arrested on Bloody Thursday, accountability for the school officials involved in the police response, and a, a few other things. An expression of solidarity, basically. The demands were ignored. In response, the activists occupied the building that is now Han Student Services for eight hours a whole workday, and later orchestrated a two-day general strike with picket lines on both ends of campus. 
Elizabeth Calciano, a local oral historian, was on the scene conducting student interviews throughout the whole shebang. Her introduction hits the nail on the head. She writes, While the People's Park controversy had been the catalytic agent and was the main focus of the grievances, nonetheless, underlying all this was the factor that the time was ripe for student activism to emerge at the Santa Cruz campus. Perhaps more important than the grievances themselves was the fact that there had built up among the student body a feeling that they could get no hearing, no recourse from the university administration. Sound familiar? Rifts between students and administrators are tales as old as time, but the building occupation and strike got particularly dramatic. At one point, Chancellor McHenry, yes, that McHenry, he has a library named after him now, he was the first chancellor of UC Santa Cruz, took out a temporary restraining order against the entire student populace. That's right, every student. Marilyn Shea, a fourth-year government student, recalls the moment when he read the order out loud to a crowd of students. We had, you know, said it was going to be non-coercive and non-violent, and he didn't seem to have enough faith in our ability to carry out our words. The communication between the students and Chancellor McKinney has broken down, and, you know, I just give anything to see it reopen. The following few weeks, as far as I can tell, were somewhat quieter. The students who skipped class for the strike returned, and as spring quarter wound down, the campus prepared to celebrate UCSC's first ever graduating class. That is when Clark Kerr came to town. To understand the UC system, you gotta understand Clark Kerr. This guy was a legend. legend. First chancellor of UC Berkeley from 1952 to 1957. Wow. 12th president of the University of California from 1958 to 1967. No way. Economics wizard, oh. family man. Oh. He was even blacklisted by the FBI. So cool. If this guy's got an unchecked box for 1960s cool, I ain't found it. Oh, yeah. Cooler still, Clark had been fired from his position as president of the UC after the Board of Regents took a few years to decide how mad at him they were for his response to Berkeley's free speech movement in 1964. Kerr was too lenient, too progressive, they said. Guess who masterminded the firing, by the way? Governor Reagan himself. Twisted and gyrated. Meanwhile, everyone at UC Berkeley hated his guts because they thought he was too strict and conservative and authoritarian. Go figure. Anyway, Reagan and the board coordinate his dismissal. The FBI blacklists him for some reason. And then Clark gets to chill at last. In a press conference right after the firing, a journalist asked Clark how his wife had reacted when he told her the news. He answered, Well, I called her and told her, and she had already heard it on the television and radio. And her comment was, You know, after what we've been through for 14 and a half years, just think what an easy life we're going to be leading. In his memoir, The Gold and the Blue, Volume 2, Political Turmoil, Clark puts the firing into perspective. My loss was dramatic, but under the circumstances had value for the university. My gains, too, had great value for the university. In this sense, I agree with Galbraith that I lost big as a person, but also won big for the university as one of its leaders. What a chill guy. And, and he was right, too. Clark had a laundry list of accomplishments as president of the UC that the Board of Regents could never take away from him. And one of them was the college of his dreams, University of California, Santa Cruz. 
ever since Clark had entered higher education administration, he'd wanted to make his own Swarthmore. Unlike many universities at the time, Swarthmore College, Kerr's alma mater, was based around a system of smaller residential colleges with distinct identities. Throughout his career, he'd describe his experience there like he was reading off of a promotional pamphlet. Tightly knit, nurturing, like a family, interconnected as heck. He didn't say as heck, that's, that's my line. Clark really, really, really liked Swarthmore. And boy, was he worried about what was going on at Berkeley. The school had everything, prestigious faculty, ridiculous amounts of funding, and the finest research facilities that money could buy. But as chancellor, Clark would set aside two hours every now and then to have students come in and talk to him about their college experience. And what he heard from them was worrying. Here's Clark himself. There'd be things like, well, I listen to a professor in a class with 400 students and he has no idea in the world, you know, who I am. And, or I'm being asked, I want to get a job and I'm being asked for references and I don't know a single member of the faculty. But there were just an awful lot of people who felt they were lost souls in a big campus of that sort that nobody knew and nobody cared about them. UC Berkeley was a big, big pond. And its students knew it. They felt like tiny, insignificant fish. And when you're a college student, sometimes you need someone important to pay attention to you. These students could not find that person. So, so McHenry and you both um, saw eye to eye on, on this kind of a possibility for us. Well, we saw, yeah, we saw eye to eye on the idea of trying um, a campus which would have the advantages of a big university in terms of library, cultural programs, laboratories, and also the advantages of a uh, series of small colleges with sense of community and uh, better opportunity to make friends than on a big homogenized campus. Buried in 10 hours of student interviews, I found this gem from fourth-year history student Kate Howells. And now they're talk, some seniors are talking about um, doing something at commencement exercises, but I don't think that'll get through. Too many people are too attached to their four years here to see anything jeopardized. Well, Kate was wrong. Greetings, devoted listeners. Kyle here. I'm speaking to you from the Quarry Amphitheater, the place where the worst afternoon in Clark Kerr's life actually went down almost 54 years ago. In part one of the worst afternoon, I've told you the story of Bloody Thursday and the way it kicked off a period of furious protest at UC Santa Cruz. In doing so, I've set the stage for what we'll talk about in part two, the afternoon itself and its aftermath. Stay tuned, because boy, is it a wild one. Again, you're listening to the UCSC Slugcast, brought to you by the Division of Student Affairs and Success. I've been, and we'll continue to be, Kyle. 
I've put a list of sources in the description, and you'll hear the full credits at the end of the next episode. All right. See you then. Kyle, out. <laughs>